0: This podcast is sponsored by our friends at The Natural Shoe Store. We love The Natural Shoe Store. They're gorgeous and sustainable. What more could you want? The Natural Shoe Store, because every step matters.
1: Hi, I'm Nathan Scalaru. Great to be with you on the Dumbledore Feather podcast. We have just launched our latest magazine at Dumbo Feather on truth and critical thinking, in which we have many discussions about how we navigate the current information landscape with all its detractors, and why doubt, curiosity and humility will serve us well as we work to discern what is true. One of those conversations is with the wonderful Lisa Marciano, a social worker and Jungian analyst based in Philadelphia. You might know Lisa from her podcast, This Jungian Life in which she and two other Jungian analysts discuss cultural currents, family dynamics, personal issues, and more through a depth psychology perspective. Last year, our editor-in-chief, Barry Liverman, made a fantastic podcast series with Lisa and her colleagues called Myths, Morals, and Money, which explores our current economic system and planetary crisis through a similar lens. And you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. In the conversation that follows, Lisa is chatting with Barry about motherhood, which is the subject of Lisa's latest book, as well as the challenges posed by mass movements and tribal mentalities, and why we need to make friends with doubt.
0: Lisa, you've got an amazing book.
2: Has it been launched? It comes out on May 25th in the United States. Tell us about the book, just the title and the content it's called motherhood facing and finding yourself and it grew out of an experience that i had when my daughter was two and my son was just a few months old and it was that really hard time in early motherhood where it's eight o'clock in the morning and you think oh my god it's like 12 hours till bedtime how am i going to manage and it's like oh okay I know, here's something we can do for the next 15 minutes. And the whole day goes like that. And just everything is so hard. It was one of those days and I had put them in the double stroller and gone for a walk just to get out of the house. But it was December and it was freezing. And you know, the double stroller it was getting caught on all the tree roots on the sidewalk and that kind of thing. I'm like, Damn, just Everything about being a mother is so hard. And then I had this thought that caught me off guard. The thought that came back was, and I'm learning so much about myself as a result. Jung had this idea he called individuation. And individuation is the lifelong process of, I want to say something like becoming the person we were meant to be, of making as much of ourselves conscious as possible, learning as much as possible about ourselves and becoming the most expansive version of ourselves possible. And I thought, well, this is really an opportunity to individuate. This is a real opportunity to learn about myself. And I went home later that day and was looking online when I had a minute to see who's written that book. (laughs) I want to know more about this idea. And I I couldn't find it. And I thought, well, I guess I'm going to start researching that. So it's been a long, long, long time in process, but it is about how motherhood helps us develop as people psychologically.
0: I love it because we're collectively being challenged to the degree that parenthood really breaks you and your sense of identity and the way you would like to control your day, your minutes, your hours, your weeks, your years. There was a map to life and then a child is born, but you are the custodian, the guardian of that child. And it's such an epic task. It's such an intergenerationally epic task and you are faced with the minutiae of your day, the minutiae of your own consciousness, and the initial feeling is to rail and rage against it until hopefully there's a moment that you might find it's a portal to your own growth and expansion. And maybe... Excuse me for making this analogy. I can't help it. The pandemic is the same for humankind right now, that we're hitting the roots in the trees and we're pushing that pram and it's just not going to be the way we imagined it would be. We have to reimagine, take these bumps in the road and maybe lean into that Jungian idea that the goal of human evolution
2: is to expand our consciousness. Well, there's no question that conflict and struggle and suffering help us expand consciousness. I read this interesting thing recently that these scientists have built this biodome that's supposed to be completely self-sustaining. And it gets sunlight and there's plenty of water in there, but it's completely sheltered. And these trees grew with a biodome. And as soon as they got to full height, they just collapsed. And they couldn't figure out why, but they realized it's because they were never exposed to wind. And it's having to stiffen up and stand strong in the wind that helps us grow to our full height. So, really, why does motherhood present us with an individuation opportunity? Because it's hard. You know, why is the pandemic an opportunity to grow and stretch and expand? Because it's difficult, because we have to struggle. I wonder if. The relentless nature of it is important too. You can't escape from it. I think that's the thing. There can be in our culture, this assumption that struggling or suffering is bad and that we have to try to get rid of it or minimize it. And it's the nature of experiences like parenting that unless you have somewhat extraordinary circumstances, you can't really escape from it. Your kids are going to be there all the time I shouldn't make it sound like every single moment of motherhood is hard. Obviously, that's not true. (laughs) It can be a heck of a lot of fun. It can be very, obviously, deeply meaningful. Sometimes it's downright joyous. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. But I think the point is, mixed in that, there's a lot of difficulty.
0: I hadn't been able to imagine that motherhood is a lifelong commitment. And because we're in such a short-term culture with instant gratification at our fingertips, parenting and motherhood has consistently taken me by surprise. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to leave this role. My children are going to need me on so many levels for the rest of our lives. And that begins to highlight for me, and as challenging as that is, the role as a good ancestor. That I'm actually responsible for my grandchildren too, and all of us are for one another's. Those realizations can be taken writ large. Let's bring it back down into the personal for a minute because I want to kind of go, oh, yeah, this ripples out and out and out in a world of tectonic plates shifting around what is true, what can we trust. Who are we? Who are my people? Who is my tribe? Who am I? But what, as a Jungian, would you say on what Jung's reflections would be on how we develop our
2: intuition and discernment capabilities? There are many Jungian ideas that can touch in there. I think I want to say that Jung was very distrustful of mass movements of any kind. He says, Our fearsome gods have changed their names. They now rhyme with ism. And somewhere else, he says, All isms are dangerous. And of course, he was writing this in the midst of the 20th century, and he had a good front row seat to some pretty dangerous isms over the course of his life. But I don't think we're really in much of a different place. I think we're still contending with some pretty dangerous isms. The level of discourse in a mob, is always the lowest common denominator. I think there are times when an experience of being swept up in a mass psychology experience can be really positive, thinking or fairly banal example maybe is you're at a sporting event in the crowds and your team is winning and you're just elated. That can be really positive. Jung, of course, had seen a lot of the destructive aspect of this, and so was quite negative about it. And it's one of the reasons why his psychology is so focused on the individual. That's one of the critiques of Jungian psychology that I think is well-earned, is that it's very focused on the individual. So what can Jung tell us about weathering these sort of mass movements? Because I think that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the erosion of truth in the culture today is that it's happening in conjunction with these mass movements and these groups that claim truth for themselves. This group over here claims this truth, and this group over here claims something very different, and how do you discern, how do you know? What Jung said, and he was very clear about this, was that to avoid being subsumed into the mass, the mob, as it were, You have to have a sense of your own personal connection with that which is transcendent. So you have to have a grounding in some sense of how you are related to the infinite. This is the thing that will let you stand on your own ground and not be swept along with the crowd, which I think is true. Part of the reason that we're susceptible to getting swept along with the crowd is because it offers us an experience that feels transcendent, that feels like we're part of something larger. And I always like to do both sides of the aisle. But if you look at recent events in the United States, over the past year, there have been these ongoing protests in Portland that have sometimes been violent and sometimes involved the destruction of property. And it's Antifa or others kind of on the left. And then, of course, there was what happened on January 6th on a Capitol building. I'm not trying to equate these two things or say that they're just the same, but I think the psychology is the same. I do think the psychology is the same. So both of these events, whether you were a 22-year-old Antifa protesting in Portland, or you're one of these people that came to the Capitol on January 6th, you feel infused with this incredible energy that you're doing something important that you're on the right side of history it is a quasi-religious feeling and so having a sense of being grounded in how we are related to the infinite makes us less susceptible to falling into an ism
0: that is challenging because what you're saying is a really sophisticated notion of the infinite You have to go through so much analysis of your own story, your own biases, your unconscious biases. Like there is so much personal inquiry that needs to happen that's years worth of work to even start to unpack what you mean by the infinite. Because it sounds like God or it sounds like religion. And at the same time, it sounds like you're saying that is the very place of longing in all of us to belong to something bigger than ourselves, something deeper, richer, more expansive in the cosmos almost. Like it's the same doorway of dangerous ideology and religious fundamentalism and I know the true God and I'm connected to truth with a capital T, and it is Jesus, it is Muhammad, it is Buddha, it is Wiccan. What are you meaning when you say the infinite?
2: Well, you're absolutely right. It's the same doorway. Jung talked about the religious function of the psyche, by which he meant, this is Jung's belief, and I I can't see how he's not right about this, that we are hardwired to seek meaning and to seek relationship with the infinite. So we have a kind of religious instinct. Jung said, if you can meet that need through a traditional religious structure, good for you. You don't need to go to analysis. Most of the people that came to see him, he said, were suffering because they didn't have a source of meaning in their lives. And when you don't have a traditional religious structure, then you've got to do that work internally. You have to confront these questions of meaning. There is a difference between ideology and a personal experience of the numinous. Jung was really distrustful of dogma, and by religion, he didn't mean a creed. He meant an experience of the divine, which he very much saw as a kind of inner experience. So I think the other thing that comes up here, Barry, that we're leaning into is this idea of projection. So Jung said, the best political, social, and spiritual work we can do is to withdraw the projection of our shadow onto others. So when we talk about truth, and what I've done with that is I've said, yeah, there's these currents in the culture where different groups are claiming truths and shouting down other groups who don't agree with them. So it creates this tribal mentality. This tribe has this truth, and this tribe has this truth. And really what we're watching is we're projecting our shadow onto the other group, that they're wrong. So let's take an example. It's hard to pick any example that isn't going to offend lots of people. But okay, I'll just dive in the deep end here. I have this concern about how gender dysphoria is being treated in adolescence. Because in many places, including Australia, and certainly in the U.S., young people who self-diagnose as transgender are often being immediately affirmed by therapists, and then they're being fast-tracked for medical intervention. So there are 13-year-olds in the United States having double mastectomies. And I don't think that's good therapy to jump immediately to a physical intervention like that. I think it's a real dereliction of duty. on the part of the therapist to get so concrete so quickly. And why is there no room for nuance and discourse? Because we're seeking certainty. You know, Jung said that fanaticism is always a sign of a repressed doubt. So we repress our own doubt, and then we cannot stand to be challenged. We're maybe wrapped up in this sense of righteousness, so we're touching into that religious instinct. And then um, anyone who disagrees with us is not just wrong, but morally problematic. So, for example, there are many people who strongly advocate for rights for transgender people. And of course, I wholeheartedly support rights for transgender people. But many of the people that are advocating for that would hear me say, and I think we ought to slow down on medical treatment for minors, or at least be a little more cautious. And they would say, you're transphobic. So there's two camps here. And the other camp that says, well, you know, trans people are very oppressed and they need access to medical care and you're trying to deny them medical care. So you're transphobic. The intensity of that belief and the way that someone like me, it can be vilified for saying it, ah, there's shadow projection at work there. There's someone on my side saying, well, you know, and those trans activists who are doing all these terrible things, then there's shadow projection going that way too. There's this term intellectual humility that means that we never lose sight of the fact that we could be wrong. We don't grasp for certainty. In fact, we claim a lack of certainty. We make friends with doubt. And we even cultivate doubt in ourselves so that we're constantly checking ourselves.
0: And actually, this gets at the heart of the conversation around truth and why people are holding on to truths in this life raft way, vilifying the other and projecting the shadow certainly feels better because we don't have many social cultural containers that can allow us to be three-dimensional, to be for and against something, to be mm-hmm. equivocating over time. I'm going to say something really personal. I
2: don't know if it's relevant, but it feels relevant. Mm-hmm. I find that something comes up, it's right to say it. Okay, it's super
0: awkward, but it's for real. After I had my kids, I described that parts of my body look like they've been through an accident after having three kids, And there's a longing to return to who I was and how I looked before. Not to erase, (laughs) a little bit to erase, but not to fully (laughs) erase. I was sold a message on Instagram and social media and even socially that there were procedures that could facilitate that for me. And I could not be 42. if I just lay on the table and let the surgeon do their thing. And I got really excited. (laughs) I was like, like, shh, don't tell anyone. I'm like a really deep person and
2: I'd like to get some plastic surgery. Um, (laughs) These people get plastic surgery too, Barry. So
0: funny. And then I had this amazing meeting with a plastic surgeon who was a female the other day. And and the conversation was really nuanced and it was so fucking annoying. I wanted the doctor to fix it so that I didn't have to sit with my changed self. I didn't want there to be limitations. I said to her, but plastic surgeries, it's meant to be deliverance. It can do all these things. It's marvellous. And she said, yes, of course, but there is a price.
2: There's always a price.
0: Damn it! And therein lies another rub. For certainty, you make a bargain with the devil. Once she laid down for me what the price was, Not monetary, but health wise and sexual health wise and for my age bracket, all the things. She said, I wouldn't pay the price if I was you. And I was like, fuck, I just wanted to come in here and have a patriarch tell me that they were confident they could make me. And I've had that, of course, which is patronizing and ridiculous to be given certainties.
2: There's always a sacrifice. Everything we do, everything we get every wonderful boon that enters our life comes with a price. In our culture, we're terrible at acknowledging that. The whole American ethos is that you can get more and more and more and more and never have to pay. That's a big part of the reason why we're in such a messed up environmental situation is because there's this myth that you could just keep on consuming and consuming and there won't be a price for it. There's like unlimited economic growth. Well, how does that make sense? on whose back? How's that happening? But for years we were just taught, well, it just happens. And so it takes a real psychological maturity to say, yes, and I know there will be a price that I will have to come to terms with consciously, because if you don't come to terms with it consciously, it's still going to happen and it'll just rise up to meet you and you won't know it's coming because you've banished it from consciousness.
0: Okay. So let's come up for a little bit of air. What are your observations in the therapy space of people reckoning with their own truths at the moment? And
2: what are their struggles to arrive at the truths that they're carrying? I do see that there is a moment in the culture right now, at least in the States, where we're being encouraged to do a lot of the shadow projection and bind to the evil out there. People that are buying into that, in general, are not doing as well. Because for that to work, you have to really have enemies, and that can lead to a paranoid stance. I'm not saying there are not some really terrible things going on, and that there isn't some actual legitimate reason to feel a little paranoid. But there's enough bad out where we don't really have to gin it up. In order to create this sense of certainty and virtue and to know that we're on the right side, you almost have to manufacture some monsters. So if you're invested too much in this idea that the bad guys are out there and you need to call them out or virtue signal or something, and that you've got the truth, it creates a nice fortress psychologically, but that's not actually that healthy. People coming in and grappling a little bit more and saying, you know, I I think there's more to the story here. I don't know the whole thing. I think there's more to know here.
0: I can rage against the machine, whichever I think the machine is at any given day, given whatever articles I've been reading or people I've been speaking to. And I don't want to empathize with the other. And I live with someone who really fiercely holds space for that which we do not know and will not... Let me get away with too much projection or certainty, which is
2: really annoying. It is so annoying. It just feels so good to feel self-righteous.
0: You know, what's been coming up for me a lot lately is that my ego really wants to be in the forefront. I want to be a professional about dealing with these challenges. I want to be able to get ahead of them and fix it because as a guardian and Custodian of generations to come after me, I'd like to know that I nailed it. If you were to take in for a moment just a teaspoonful of the greed and the destruction and the mendacious forces inside of us, really, that are destroying the planet and destroying our social contract and the social fabric, if we are humbled by that, where mm-hmm. do we go from there? What relationship should we have with the ego? that wants to fix it and get ahead of it and be right.
2: Well, in some sense, Jung's whole idea is about the relationship between the conscious part of the personality and the unconscious. And there's all kinds of things in the unconscious, including the greed and the mendaciousness, and also incredible depth and wisdom. And we can't rid ourselves of our dark forces. And when we try to, we really get into trouble. So for example, let's say greed. Greed is part of our shadow. We don't wanna think that we're greedy, but you know, we're all capable of greed. So we project greed out onto the other group. I think that when we focus so much on them being greedy, whoever the them is, What we're doing is we're cutting ourselves off from the responsibility for our greed. We're pretending like we don't have it. And this is where this idea of purity spirals come in. If I'm secretly unconsciously worried about my greed, and then I go out and march and protest about someone else's greed, then I've just pretty effectively done this wonderful sleight of hand where I've seemingly taken my greed Put it out on someone else, and then I don't have to deal with it, similar to scapegoating. So, I think we want to just keep on becoming more and more conscious. And I think the three words we've already spoken about two of them tonight, and maybe I'll introduce the third now. So, there's doubt, there's humility, and then there's curiosity. And if we can approach any idea or feeling that comes up in us with doubt, humility, and curiosity, then I think we'll be in a pretty good place.
0: And the answer to the
2: universe is.
0: The first thing that came up for me when you said that, doubt, humility, and curiosity, I can't be curious when I'm feeling attacked.
2: Likewise, it's hard to feel really sort of defended and closed off when you're feeling curious. And of course, we're talking about having doubt about ourselves and what we think we're so sure of. We're talking about having some humility about our own truths and being willing to hold our sense of truth, but hold it a little bit loosely with a sense that we might be wrong or we might change our mind one day and curiosity about ourselves and our beliefs. When you said that just then, I thought, but hang on a second,
0: Lisa, climate change is real and we need to work towards long-term planning to become resilient and regenerative regional hubs that can cope with less water, fresh air being—you know—you know there are things that are true. Yet you're saying we need to hold them softly,
2: but also have agency with the things we know to be true. In some sense, you can have more agency because you have held it in the fire of doubt. In other words, your knowledge about climate change is hard won. You've really done the spade work. You know all the research. You've read all kinds of things. You've talked to a million people. You know what you know because you've dug down to bedrock with it. And your views on it only strengthen as you expose it to more doubt.
0: That's interesting. The exercise itself is about exposing it to doubt and putting it into rigorous containers where it's challenged. So you may have done a hell of a ton of research. You don't realize you've been shoved down algorithms by YouTube and Facebook because they gain dollar value by your distraction that they've sent you on, but you take it in as truth and as valuable research that you have done.
2: Those algorithms deliver certainty, not knowledge. And certainty is seductive.
0: So what we need to do is keep putting our information on the testing platform. You bring air to it, will the bacteria live? (laughs) We need to test our theories in spaces that are not bubbles of confirmation.
2: Exactly. And this is what universities really used to be, is places where ideas could be challenged in richly. It was incredibly productive the strongest ideas would win because they've been exposed to tests and challenges and knowledge expands in that way. I don't know that that is as true anymore at universities because I think they have often become bubbles.
0: We need rich spaces of three-dimensional discourse where nuance is allowed and certainty is not the aim of the game.
2: Right. And when you say that discourse is allowed, you have to take it for granted that someone isn't evil just because they disagree with you. I would say another thing is if you have a really, really strong sense that someone else is bad or evil or, you know, fill in the blank, homophobic, transphobic, whatever it is, uh, racist. I mean, maybe they are. I mean, those things all really exist, But if you feel yourself getting really, really ginned up over it, I think it's healthy to think, okay, why am I getting so upset about this? Sometimes when we get really, really upset about something, it's because there's a terrible injustice and our whole mind, our whole psyche just rails against it. Sometimes when we get really upset about something, we're in that realm of shadow projection and we have to say, is that person really these things that I'm accusing them of? Or is it possible that I'm doing some projection? One of the ways that we know we're in the realm of shadow is when we have an outsized reaction to something.
0: I love that because it speaks to what Jung also talks about, what maturity is. Maturity is earned. It's very hard to do. It's a practice. Let's go back a little bit What about myth, a healthier fiction, which has a very specific role to play in the subconscious? I wonder if you can tease out how myth is of service to the self because to Jung, myths emerged from the unconscious and contained archaic truth about existence. They were first and foremost
2: psychic phenomena that revealed the nature of the soul. You know, Joseph Campbell has a slightly different take on myth than Jung, and it's really interesting. Of course, Campbell was really influenced by Jung, but Campbell said something a little different that I find really fascinating, is that myth arises from the unconscious and says something about the psyche. But it also has been filtered through culture for thousands and thousands of years, And every culture reworks the myths. And so they become very refined. So that in the end, any mythological system is a kind of raw fruit from the unconscious. It also contains the distilled wisdom of a culture. I think that is true. So that a myth says something about the best way to live one's life. What is the difference between myths? And a lie. I think a child once answered that a fairy tale is something that's false on the outside, but true on the inside. So it's possible that all of the fake news has some little kernel of truth in it. And I'm not talking about objective truth, you know, that there really is a pedophile ring in a pizza parlor. What I'm curious about when I hear those stories is if that were a fairy tale, or if that were a dream, or if that were a neurotic fantasy, where's the kernel of medicine in it? know, Jung said that every symptom is a failed attempt at a cure. He saw the psyche as a self-regulating system. So the neurotic fantasy is the psyche's attempt to cure itself. So if we as a culture have a fake news myth, In what way is that an attempt at a cure? That can be interesting to ask.
0: That is exquisitely restorative to me. And that's when we start to do the real work of responding to this moment from a spacious three-dimensional. Symbolic. Yeah. Because something in the human psyche is trying to resolve itself or be healed this is what I'm most inspired by. Something in the human psyche is longing for wholeness. So the idea that there's a pedophile ring run by the Democrats and it's functioning under a pizza parlor, the way that took hold of the American psyche and QAnoners, et cetera, I love the thought that that could be viewed symbolically and it could be unpacked in terms of what is trying to speak through the human psyche that wants to take us back to wholeness. I'd almost put out an invitation to any amazing people listening to this conversation or reading this conversation to let us know what deeper medicine is in there for all of us to to
2: think about. What do you think? Well, I think unpacking something like that takes time, and so I'm a little wary of jumping in here. But I will say something like this pedophile ring in a pizza parlor. If we look at it as a little bit of a myth or a dream or a fairy tale, It's a profoundly disturbing and sad story about the loss of innocence and the misuse of children. So is it pointing to a way in which our culture is not attending to the young and vulnerable parts of us?
0: It brings up for me Ursula Le Guin's amazing fable, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, which is a repeated fable about the child in the basement. Basically, the suffering that is underground, that is sacrificed for the um, society above ground to live a perfect life. And we get back to a theme that we're talking about, which is there is a price.
2: I think we've just done it together, Barry. That's great, that amplification with that story. And so then if we're looking at it that way, then we can see that there is some truth in it because there is a symbolic child in the basement. There are symbolically children being abused and manipulated, and that might be actual children, but it's also on a personal level, those childlike vulnerable parts of ourselves. And it's not that the Democrats are doing it. It's not that the Republicans are doing it. It's that we're all... Doing. We're all exploiting that child in the basement, both on a personal level and on a collective level. And what we can do at least is become conscious of that price. And this little myth about the pedophile ring in the pizza parlor, the medicine there is it's purporting to make the price conscious. Of course, it's doing in this in this kind of perverted way. There's a perversion there because it's not literally happening and that just leads us astray if we think about it literally if we think about it as a dream oh my god there are children being exploited well yeah yeah there are tim hollis has said we all kill our children every day and we do we kill our creative children we kill the tender vulnerable parts of ourselves We live in such a way that we cannot avoid killing the children. And, yeah, it would be heroic to make that conscious. I'm so grateful for this conversation, Lisa, Mm
0: -hmm. and as always for your framing. I feel that it's our job at the moment to seek framing that enriches our conversations. It's not just the framing, but what are the outcomes If we all agree and can come to an agreement that we want outcomes like fresh water for our children and our children's children and our children's children, a sustainable ecological container on planet Earth where we have fresh air for all human beings on Earth, like that's where we're at now. We have to agree on these things. Fish in the ocean. Social cohesion where we can trust one another. Like those are basic foundational agreements we could come to. And if we're saying that's where we're going, then we kind of can walk
2: back from there. We can't fix what's happening with the planet unless we can talk to each other.
0: And agree on truths or creating generative spaces for rich and nuanced dialogue and discussion where multiple truths can be present. I'm grateful for you. Thank you so much.
2: Can I finish with a story?
0: Yes.
2: (laughs) So this is a story that Jung told, and he loved this story. I think it really goes to this question, how do we frame this? And sometimes the human psyche responds to story. So I'll let the story speak to how we frame it. It was a story that came from Jung's good friend was a sinologist, Richard Wilhelm. And he had experienced this in China. And he told the story. There was a village where the rains didn't come. And the villagers did everything that they normally did to make the rains come, and the rains didn't come. So they sent for the rainmaker. And the rainmaker came to the village and he took a look around. And then he went out to the field beyond the village and set up his tent and just stayed there for two or three days. And then the rains came. And the villagers said, What did you do? And he said, well, I got here and things were out of balance. And I knew that I had to get back in balance. And that if I got back in balance, that the village would get back in balance and the rains would come. And so I think the invitation is for us all to do our own work, to go into our tents metaphorically, which doesn't mean we're not going to take action, but it does mean that we're going to take responsibility for our own psyches and then the rains will come.
1: Thank you for your company on the Dumbo Feather podcast. If these ideas sparked your curiosity, then get a hold of issue 66 of Dumbo Feather magazine, available at selected news agencies and specialty stores, and over at our website, dumbofeather.com.au. You can tune in to Lisa's weekly podcast, This Jungian Life, or the mini-series with Barry I mentioned earlier, Myths, Morals and Money, presented by Small Giants Academy, wherever you get your podcasts. Lisa's new book, Motherhood, can be ordered by her website, lisamarciano.com. Thanks to the guys at Cheshire Audio and Yaga for editing this episode. Dumbo Feather is part of the Small Giants Academy, an education and media initiative providing wisdom and action for a hopeful future. You can learn more about our work and check out all the wonderful events we currently have on offer over at smallgiants.com.au.
0: For more than 15 years, Dumbo Feather magazine has provided stories of hope and change for people around the world. We've dived deep with some of the world's foremost thought leaders from Brene Brown and Jane Goodall to Kate Raworth and Charles Massey and learned with them the systems change and inner work needed to bring about a hopeful future. The complete Dumbo Feather collection includes healing the land, courage, the next economy, power, rest, and our evolutionary moment. Join us and our community of changemakers and deep thinkers and become a subscriber today at dumbofeather.com. Thanks to our friends at the Natural Shoe Store where you'll find footwear that's good for your feet and kind to the planet thenaturalshoestore.com.au